I love all animals, but one of my favorites is the elephant. A couple of things you might not know about elephants. When you see a herd of elephants, the leader of that family group is one of the females. When a male elephant is born, he sticks around with the family until he's around 12 years old, then he heads off on his own. The female elephants will usually stay with the family herd their whole lives. And even though elephants are the largest land mammal, they're actually pretty fast. They can run up to 25 miles an hour, or about 40 kilometers an hour. And they're incredibly intelligent. Maybe that's why they put the females in charge. Elephants are one of the few species to recognize themselves in a mirror. And they have really complex emotions and compassion. They mourn the death of their loved ones, much like we do as humans. Today we're going to hear from Ella about the time she had an encounter with an elephant. For a while it was great. She felt like she was really connecting with this amazing creature. But suddenly, things went very wrong. Real people in unreal situations. There is a girl hanging by her broken leg from the telephone wire. And I called 911 and I said, I found a baby. I turned around. I see a gun pointed at me close enough I could touch it. She would hold our heads underwater all the time. He levels the gun, pulls the trigger, and I go down. Her eyes were full of tears. She didn't want to leave us. My hair catches on fire. I swear to God, this is this image is burning my head for the rest of my life. I'm Scott Johnson, and this is What Was That Like? Hey, it's Scott, and guess what? You're about to hear an ad, and that's both good and bad. It's good because ads are what make it possible for me to keep bringing you these episodes, and it's bad because, well, maybe you don't like listening to ads, and I get that. And the good news is, you don't have to. When you sign up to support the show, you get every single episode without any ads. Plus, you get all the bonus episodes. Yeah, did you know there are actually bonus episodes? And you can try it all for free just to see what it's like. If you're on an iPhone, just go to the What Was That Like podcast and at the top, click on Try Free and you're in. On Android, just go to whatwasthatlike.com plus and try it out completely free. Once you've had the ad-free experience, you'll see why hundreds of other listeners are already doing it. But for now, here's another ad, and then on with today's episode. Overwhelmed by investing? If you're anything like us, the hardest part is getting started. That's why we created the Investing for Beginners podcast. Our goal is to help simplify money so it can work for you. We invite guests to demystify investing. At least try to be setting aside like the minimum 10% into the 401k. I'll teach you the basics of the market. Yeah, I think compound interest should be at the start of any discussion about investing. And We've had investment professionals who teach in a simple way. A valuation-driven bear market. You know, we, we haven't really seen yet, and I think everyone's thinking about it, but we haven't really seen yet. Our Q&A episodes feature questions from listeners just like you. So what do you think about the situation with ETBI, which is Activision? 
I'm Dave Ahern. And I'm Andrew Sather. And we hope you join us on the Investing for Beginners podcast. On the Investing for Beginners podcast. Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out the Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams. Before this happened, had you ever seen an elephant in real life, like in a circus or something? Yes. When I was a kid, we'd go to the zoo a lot and we went to the circus. I've been to the circus and actually in high school, I would protest the animal cruelty against the elephants at the circus. <laughs> so, nice. Yeah. I've always I'm loved I'm with them. you on that. <laughs> yeah. I think when you see one in real life, they just seem, they're much bigger than maybe what you would have imagined. They're huge. They're like maybe twice as big, three or four times as big as a horse, which is, and a horse is big. So this happened in Thailand. What were you doing there? So, Because you live in America, right? I do. I live in America. Um, I was visiting my best friend who was teaching English in Taiwan. And she had a little vacation coming up. And so I was living in New York with family. I had saved all my money from a bakery job. I was in between farm seasons. I was farming in Long Island. And in between farm seasons and saved up all of my tips, all of my money from my bakery job over the winter to go and visit. She'd been already in Asia for a year. And I had never been. And I thought it would be a really great opportunity to visit. So we went on kind of a backpacking trip along Asia and had a bunch of stops planned, mostly Taiwan, Thailand, and Vietnam. So yeah, so that's what we were doing in Thailand. What was your method of travel while you were there? It was very cool. A lot of trains, which I love, and boats. So our first stop on the trip was to Thailand we had spent a few days in Taiwan already, and I loved it. It was very, very cool. We took buses and trains and flew to Thailand. So we flew there in Thailand. Mainly, we were taking boats to the little islands in the south, and then we took a train up north to Chiang Mai. How many people were in this group? Who were you traveling with? I was traveling with my best friend, Margie, and her partner, Bobby. So the three of you were just... Uh... Taking in all the sights all around Thailand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, I've, I've seen pictures, never been there, but yeah, it looks like it's a great place to, to visit. You ended up at an elephant sanctuary. And you know, when I hear sanctuary, I kind of picture older elephants who just want to live out their life in peace. Or, or was it more like, hey, tourists, come ride the elephants, like a money-making thing? Well, can you describe that place? It definitely turned out to be a little bit of both. 
I think when I initially heard elephant sanctuary, I imagined, oh, yeah, like rescued elephants living out their days in peaceful coexistence. What we ended up realizing is that to fund a park like that, if you don't just have a ton of funding, you do need to make the animals kind of work for it in a way to pay for the feeding and the care. So they offered like rides, which I didn't realize that we would be riding the elephants, but that was, I think, part of the like tourism pull and kind of marketing strategy is that you'd get these experiences with the elephants riding, taking pictures, feeding, things like that, which was maybe a little bit exploitative to the animals more so than what I thought that we were just going to be like looking at them and hanging out and watching them. So it was a lot more interaction, a lot more kind of tourism, uh, money-making. They weren't being exploited like they would be in a circus or something. No, not in a zoo. Exactly. Like they weren't being transported around and being kept in enclosures that were unsafe. And I don't think that, I think that I don't, know what the possibilities are for a rescued elephant. I mean, they were saved from poaching situations or hunting or like really terrible traumatic situations. And they are very sensitive animals. So when we fed them at the very beginning, we fed them sugarcane. It was part one of the first interactions. And they had, I noticed that they had chains around their, their feet. So didn't seem overtly cruel or anything like that, but it did seem like, oh, these are animals that need some level of like control around them, maybe. How many elephants live there? That's such a good question. Just a guess. Yeah. It seemed like maybe 20, up to 20. So that would be, I mean, that would be rather a big expense to having to feed 20 elephant. I mean, I can imagine they must eat quite a bit with their size. Yeah. Maybe it was between 10 and 20, but it seemed like, yeah, there were some maybe that were newer. I'm sure they have a situation where they're always kind of, I know a lot of rescue organizations like animal rescue, pets and things like that. They're always kind of wanting to save animals and people will, they'll want to make room for, for any sort of animal that needs to be rescued because the consequences, if not, are so much, are so dire. So I'm sure that they loved the animals so much that they wanted to have as many as possible. It's like any other animal rescue place, you know, it's, I mean, yes, you have to consider it as a business, but when you see an animal that needs help, you can't just say, sorry, we don't have room anymore. You just somehow figure it out. Absolutely. You find a way. So it did seem like they really did love the animals and each elephant had their own human that like lived with it was like their kind of constant buddy. And they all seemed to be kind of young men who would live with the elephants and care for them. Kind of not exactly a trainer, but kind of like a trainer, like someone who was in charge of that animals kind of like rehabilitation and companionship. What kind of instructions were you given before the ride began? That's a great question. It was actually many hours of instruction. <laughs> so Wow. Okay. Yeah. So when we got there, they gave us these denim jumpsuits and we wore them throughout the entire experience. And our first like I had mentioned, our first experience was 
feeding the elephants. So we got sugar cane, we got to feed them and interact with them. And then for the next couple hours, we spent a lot of time learning commands and communications to have with the elephants. So we learned how to tell them to kind of get down on one leg so we could climb up to ride them. We learned how to give them water. We learned how to thank them. We learned how to give basic commands, communications, and like respect to the animal. So we spent a lot of time doing that. The trainers would come and ask for volunteers. So it was a lot of like observation of the elephants and learning these communications and techniques. So we were given a lot of commands in Thai, which was, I think, nobody on the trip's first language. We were learning to to do that. And so we did that for a couple hours of kind of instruction about how to interact with the animals. And then we had lunch and then we started the ride. It's really interesting that they would spend that much time. But also now, if anybody ever asked you, do you speak Thai? <laughs> yeah, but only to an elephant. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And obviously my communication is not, not the best. So, <laughs> <laughs> so how, you, you mentioned one of the things you learned was how to thank the elephant at the end of the ride. Mm-hmm. Is that just, they just have that much respect for the animal that they want to make sure to include that? Or, or what did that sound like? Yeah, it seemed like a simple gesture to communicate that, yeah, that you're a, a friend of theirs, kind of, and that you're not an enemy. Because I think they are very sensitive animals who have come from situations where humans were harmful to them. So thanking them and kind of creating a a bond or a connection, I think, was was a part of it. And it's also, yeah, I think from a tourism perspective, I think people would want to. If they, ca- I mean, everyone who came to the elephant park came because they love elephants and wanted to interact. So I think that was part of it. How tall are you and how tall, how much taller was the elephant when you're standing next to him? So I'm 5'10 and I think the elephants are probably about six feet. Like at eye level, I think that you can kind of, I was Maybe not exactly at eye level, but close to. It wasn't like towering above me. Because uh, yeah. I'm picturing this animal is like twice as tall as you are, but it's not that. It's not that much, though. Not for me. I, I'm a relatively tall, taller person, so I think for me, I didn't feel like it was towering above me or anything super intimidating in terms of size. Definitely large and and wide and heavy. And there were some baby elephants, too, that were on the younger side or just, you know, there were different genetic, like, lines of elephants. There were some, like, just particularly smaller ones and some that were larger. What's the process for getting on the back of an elephant? It was so cool. Elephants are so, they're so beautiful and interesting. And I never thought about this before, but... In the training, they had the elephants kneel down so that their foot was essentially creating a stair for you to step on to get up onto their back. So if you've ever ridden a horse, you know, you'd have a saddle that you put one foot in the saddle and then lift 
hoist yourself up to get the other leg around. And so this ad acted as kind of like a step to go right directly onto the elephant. So when, and when they're kneeling, stepping on that foot gives you enough height to swing your other leg over and, and then you're on. Yeah. And it's, it's wider than a horse's body. So it spreads your hips a little bit wider than, than riding a horse or something like that. Were you nervous at all dealing with an animal that's this huge? You know, I don't think I was. I had this, I have, I continue to have this, I don't know, rose-colored glasses sort of idea about the world. And Like, these guys are professionals. <laughs> Obviously, nothing can go wrong. Right? Yeah. And, oh, I love elephants and they love me. And so, like, nothing bad's going to happen. And, you know, I was on a hike uh, a couple months ago in North Carolina and I saw a bear. And where I live in California, there's deer everywhere and turkeys. And I'm used to seeing wildlife. And I just walk right by it. I just, that's just my, oh, that's a bit, like, that's a, I'll just walk right by it. Like, like someone on the street, like, uh, like, <laughs> like in New York, you just walk right by. So I guess I just have this kind of tendency to think like, oh, nothing, nothing's going to happen. And yeah, so I have a pretty, maybe naive view of, I wasn't nervous to answer your question. I didn't feel any. I mean, yes, they're big, and I think I now have so much more respect, but I wasn't at the time nervous because, yeah, I trusted trusted all the trainers, trusted all the elephants, and didn't think of what could have gone wrong. I mean, my mom, before I went on the trip, has said, oh, this Australian woman was just killed by an elephant in Thailand. Like, be careful. And I was like, well, that's not, that can't happen to me. Like, you know, you worry too much. You watch the news too much. That sort of thing. My whole <laughs> podcast is based on people that thought that'll never happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> no one ever does. <laughs> right. So, um, okay. Yeah. So the, so the ride starts, how many elephants and riders were there? How many guides? What did it look like as you started out? I would say it was about 10 elephants. As far as I can, can remember, I remember about 10 elephants and 20, about 20 people. So most people, who were there, who were participating were couples on their honeymoon or friends traveling. But um, so it was mainly like couples on each elephant. So about 10 elephants, two people on each elephant, and then a trainer by, by the side of each elephant. So were you on with someone else? I was. I was on with Bobby, Margie's partner. <laughs> Margie had chosen to, Margie maybe has a healthier fear of of <laughs> situations in life. And so she chose a baby elephant towards the front that she chose to ride. And um, Bobby and I were on the, the, one of the larger elephants towards the middle or the back. How long was the ride supposed to go or how long was it supposed to last? I think a couple hours. I think that the end route was supposed to go through this forest trail and then end at a water a big water hole, watering hole. And then you were going to be able to swim with the elephants and interact with them in a water setting. I think that probably would have taken a couple hours. So you guys take off on this ride. Take us through what happened. So we were riding along this beautiful 
jungle trail. And they had us a couple times practice getting off and then getting back on the elephants. And I think that each time we would give them water and thank them and then get back on. So there was a guide at the front of the trail of the line of elephants who was kind of like making these decisions about where to stop and where to get back on. So when we when we stopped, I didn't think much of it because we had been doing this a few times. The ride was just like us kind of going through this trail. So we get off at this kind of at this spot that didn't it was like near a fenced area. It didn't really seem like there was anything to look at. It seemed like the other spots were a view to look at or a, a some sort of attraction to look at. So and the elephants were probably used to stopping at these same points from having yes. done it many times before. Yes, they they I'm sure had done these rides, you know, every day for a long time. At this one particular stop, we got off the elephant and everyone was kind of standing around and I went to the front of the elephant and kind of looked her in her eyes. I thought, oh, we're getting off the ride. I'm going to go thank her. So I got in front of her. I patted her on her trunk, which is what we were told. And I said the words in Thai for thank you. And she had this, she had this look in her eye that was like, maybe she was a little scared. And so she immediately with her trunk grabbed my arm that I had been using to thank her, pulled me towards her with so much force that it knocked me to the ground. And then she started kicking me around, kind of like a rag doll. And it happened so quickly. I don't think I really even had time to register what was happening. But at one point when I was on the ground, feeling myself beneath her feet, I yelled, help me. I just like, I kind of realized like, uh oh, I'm in over my head here and I, I need help. So I yelled, help me. And I didn't realize what was kind of going on above the ground. But I, but I think that her trainer had gotten on her back and tried to like get her off and she had thrown him off. At the moment that I was yelling, like, help me. She had had her foot on my shoulder not pushing her weight down, nothing like that, but just kind of had me pinned to the ground. That was the first moment that I was scared because I didn't know what was going to happen. I don't know how many other people do this, but I like to plan my weekly meals. Maybe I'm just weird, but I like quick and easy. That's just one of the benefits you can get with Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com slash what or enter code what before checkout to get 50% off your first week. One of the dishes I recently had was the Green Goddess Falafel Bowl. Oh, I loved it. The falafel was seasoned perfectly, and I love how crispy it is on the outside, but really moist on the inside. It's a signature dish of Enat Admoni. She's known around the world as a chef. You've probably seen her on TV and her dishes are made right here in Florida, so I'm supporting local business, and I love that. And the convenience of Cook Unity is crazy. I mean, I've got podcast episodes to produce. I don't have time for cooking. These meals are delivered fully cooked. 
So when it's time to eat, I pick a meal based on my mood for that day, I heat it for a few minutes, and enjoy. The menus are updated every week, so there's always something new to try. You can choose from over 350 meals based on your dietary needs or taste preferences, or go wild and have Cook Unity pick for you, because every meal is just amazing. Make the best meal plan ever with the convenience, chef-level quality, and endless variety of Cook Unity. Go to cookunity.com what or enter code what before checkout for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using code what or going to cookunity.com what. Something I've been recently making a deliberate effort with is to read more. There are lots of books I want to read, and I try to read every day, even if it's just a few pages. That little bit each day adds up, and it can make a big difference. It's like taking care of your gut. Even though it's not big, it supports the health of your whole body. Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic benefits not just your gut and your heart, which aren't outwardly visible, but your skin too, which you can see. Every morning it's the same thing. Two capsules of Seed DSO-1. And sometimes I wonder, is it normal to feel this great? It helps support digestive health with optimal gut bacteria levels. And thankfully that's all backed up by science. And all the supporting data is on their website. If you're trying to avoid sugar, soy, peanuts, or gluten, you're good to go. And I was reading the literature and I thought, you had me at vegan, because it's that too. And if you have kids, DSO-1 is the first multi-strain symbiotic shown to be tolerable and health-promoting in a cohort of children aged 3 to 17. And you can use this promo code to give it a try. Trust your gut with Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash what and use code 25what to get 25% off your first month. That's 25% off your first month of Seeds DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic at seed.com slash what, code 25what. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, You'll love the I Can't Sleep podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention, and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. When I yelled or when she maybe realized that I wasn't a threat to her at all, she shifted her body weight, released her leg, and then she ran off in another direction. Did everyone else see this happening? I think a lot of people did at least see the aftermath. So they saw me lying there on the ground. Because my best friend was in the front of the line, she had maybe a little, she didn't really see what was going on. She just kind of heard the heard some commotion. But her partner who had been on the elephant with me saw saw all of it. Yeah, Bobby was with you on the elephant. So you both had gotten off. Yes. But Bobby was smart enough not to go thank the elephant, I guess. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. 
smart enough and, you know, I thought I was doing a polite thing and doing a friendly thing. What I would find out later was that was the reason why the elephant was particularly anxious in that moment and that I wasn't approaching an animal who was calm and happy and and okay. I was approaching an animal that was very nervous about what was happening around her. I was at the very front of the line of people and elephants. Ella's best friend, Margie. I was on a baby elephant because I was very scared of the big elephants. And because I was so far ahead, it was a little bit delayed when I realized what had happened because there was some commotion of elephants, but I couldn't tell if they were just kind of like shuffling around. And then I looked back And I saw Ella lying on the ground. And we were on these trails, these unpaved, really dry, dusty. It was like red, reddish brown dust. And she's just covered in this reddish brown dust lying on the ground. And she looked dead. And they had us all in these like denim outfits. So everyone was wearing the same thing. So it took a second for me to realize who it was. And then to process that my best friend is lying on the ground in the dust with people like starting to gather around her. And I didn't know if she was alive. I didn't know what had happened. When I went over to her, the guides were trying to talk to her and see if she was okay. And at first she wasn't moving and then they were encouraging her to get up and I was getting upset because I was like, she could have like a spinal injury. Like (laughs) she, she maybe shouldn't stand up right now, but you know, I had no idea what to do. They had no idea what to do. And then they helped Ella stand up. And on the one hand, I was so relieved, like she's alive. Then I looked at her and her eyes were open, but they were white. Like her eyes were looking down, so her eyelids were open, but they were kind of fluttering and her eyes just were like, it was like totally just the whites of her eyes. And it was absolutely terrifying. And she wasn't responsive. People were saying stuff and Ella wasn't really answering. And then um, then they did start responding, which was a huge relief, but still like taking really almost like robotic Tin Man steps, like just walking in a way that like, I just couldn't tell what was going on as like Ella was trying to put one foot in front of the other. It was the scariest thing that I've ever seen in my life. The people did see what was happening, at least at the point where I were the like rescue at the rescue moment where people were coming. When you were on the ground with an elephant's foot, on your shoulder, were you face up or face down? Face down. Did the thought cross your mind that, well, I might not survive this? Yes. I, I definitely, I think at one point realized I need to like protect my head or something. I think that my biggest concern was that I would get a head injury and be, I didn't think (laughs) about exactly the physical consequences, but I just knew instinctually, like, I need to protect my head. I need to not get kicked, stepped on, or hit in the head. 
So I definitely knew that that was a possibility. And I knew that there was a chance that that would, that could be the injury that could, yeah, kill me. So after she ran off, I laid there for a little while. And I think I have these, uh, maybe parental, uh, fears that I think people just say this a lot. Like if you get hurt or you're in an accident, like don't move the person because you could have a back injury or end up, end up doing something that could paralyze you. So I think I laid there for a while, just kind of trying to feel my body and feel what the injuries were. But I was in so much shock because it happened so quickly. So I was not in my body at all. And I also couldn't see anything. And it wasn't like a blackout. It was like a whiteout. I couldn't see anything. My eyes were open. And I don't know how long it took. It must have taken a while because I don't know how far we were from where the trucks were. But all of a sudden, they were telling me to get in the truck. And I said, what truck? I can't see a truck. So I have no idea like the period of time in which it took to get the truck up there or what their equipment was like for someone with an injury or who had fallen or who had been attacked or anything like that. So I don't think they had a gurney. They definitely didn't have like a first aid protocol in which this was a possibility. So they just kind of said, get in the truck. We're going to take you to the hospital. Was Margie with you at that time? Yes. She saw me while I was on the ground. That's what she described. And and she was also in shock and started laughing. And that's a pretty common, if you're in shock, sometimes laughter is, it's like a release that your body is trying to make because you can't logically put things in order. I think then Bobby told her what happened and she is just a force. And I don't know how she did it, but she got all our stuff out of the locker and made arrangements with the people running the park to get, to get us to the hospital. And some conversation got our money back from the park. So she was behind the scenes. And yeah, and they ended up riding in the truck with me on the way to the hospital. And one of the park employees was driving us. You mentioned the locker. Wasn't that back at the sanctuary? Yeah. So we must not have been so far because I think that they... They must have had some sort of communication, maybe walkie-talkies or something to tell someone to come and get the truck and bring us. And that part was a blur to me in terms of the timeline, like how things happened in what order. Right. Because you were in shock. Mm-hmm. I have never heard of lack of eyesight being a symptom of shock. It's also possible that I had a slight head injury. I mean, I think it's entirely possible that. I was knocked on my head at some point during the attack. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so you're in the truck, and Margie and Bobby are also in the truck with you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, okay. they got in the back seat. At what point did you become conscious and aware of what had happened and what was happening? So I do remember the, the drive to the hospital very well. It was, I remember the air conditioning being very cold and I ma- remember making a joke that I was really glad we didn't go to the tiger park. 
<laughs> that's a good sign, I guess, and you're making jokes like that. That's what Margie said. She said that she was really worried, and then I made the joke, and she and she was like, oh, okay, Ella's going to be okay. I think then I was like, oh, oh, I got trampled by an elephant. Oh, I could have probably been killed by a tiger or something. You know, I was starting to put together what had what had just happened. How long was the ride? That was about an hour. It was to get to the hospital. Very far. Yeah. And I think also at that point when I started putting together what happened, my body started shaking because I was starting to come back into feeling my body and feeling what happened. And I just knew that I had injuries and wasn't was not sure of the extent of them. That's pretty scary. Yeah. What were your actual injuries? Well, thank God they were mostly like surface. We were taken to an Australian hospital. So they spoke English, which was helpful for me because I speak English. The doctors were able to explain to me my injuries and explain to me what was going on. Is it common that hospitals there are designated by nationality? I mean, it seems kind of odd that an Australian hospital would be in Thailand. I think it was kind of like a missionary, like a Christian, you know, there's like, yeah, like it was like a Christian hospital, I think. So that was set up by Australians. And I think the doctors there just happened to speak English. And one of the nurses was from Australia. So she was able to like communicate to me what was, what the injuries were. And were you okay with the level of care that was that you perceived could be provided here? Or I'm picturing, you know, a, a hospital set up by missionaries. I'm picturing like maybe a, a glorified urgent care center or something, not a real hospital. Yeah. I mean, it was very, it was very cool. It was very interesting. It was mostly open air, which like I've been to a, I've been to an airport in Hawaii that was kind of open air. And I think it's just like, yeah, you either pay a lot for air conditioning or you have it be kind of open air, which you don't think of a hospital being kind of open air. No. no, no. Now I'm thinking of a scene from MASH. <laughs> yeah, <No. laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a very nice hospital. I mean, I think that I think that the people from the Elephant Park took us to the best hospital that they that they could have, that they knew of, that was close close enough. And so I was in a, a sanitary ER room. That part was not open air. It was open air on your way to the x-ray, but the room that I was in was actually closed and sanitary. And the first thing that they did was clean the, clean the wounds. I'd say the majority of my wounds were soft tissue damage, so a lot of bruising, and road rash. So the road rash was from being in a denim jumpsuit that was like shorts. And then being kind of kicked around onto, on dirt. So there were lots of little pebbles in my skin. There were lots of, there was a lot of dirt. And the nurse told me that if she didn't scrape it as hard as she was scraping it, because that was when I first started to feel pain, real pain, was when they were cleaning those larger skin wounds. Because they were... She told me if she didn't clean them, they would be tattooed forever by the dirt that was getting into the skin. So she said she had to clean it and she had to remove all the dirt or I could get an infection. 
So that was extremely painful. That was one of the first times that I like really was yelling and screaming because it was incredibly painful. So they did a wonderful job as best they could numbing. <laughs> I I think they tried to numb it, but I don't think at that point they could. They just had to start cleaning. And so they cleaned and dressed the open wounds that I had. And then they sent me to x-rays to see if I had any broken bones or any internal bleeding. And luckily I didn't have either. You were pretty lucky here. Incredibly lucky. So lucky because it was just, it could have been so bad. And it, it totally transformed the entire rest of the trip from being, well, I really hope we make all of our stops to, I'm so glad we're okay. I'm so glad that we're alive. Did you stay at the hospital overnight or did they send you, send you away that day? They sent me home after the doctors ruled out severe concussion. So they observed me for a few hours, a few hours, I think. And then they sent us back. And the, the guy from the elephant park was so nice. He stayed with us the whole time and dropped us off back at our hotel and said, if I needed to go back to the hospital the next day, he would be happy to, to drive us. So he really was so wonderful in that. I don't know how, how Thailand is as far as being litigious like we are here in the United States, but do you think he was just a nice person or was he concerned that you would retaliate financially or legally some way? You know, that's a good question. I, I do think that the legal system is very, very different. And at that point, I think the gratitude for being alive was so much stronger than any sort of, I do think if it happened in the U.S., my friend would have absolutely started a lawsuit. Meaning Margie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but she she was able to get our money back and they they paid for all the medical bills. I don't know how expensive they were for an ER bill in, in Thailand, but they were very helpful. And because I wasn't severely injured, it didn't seem like, you know, it, if I had been paralyzed or something and like lost the ability to make money for the rest of my life or something like that, maybe would have been more interesting. But I think we were all just so lucky that I wasn't hurt worse. So we were happy to just thank them for their care that they provided and hope that the elephant was okay. They sent you away with instructions on how to change the dressing or what were your instructions uh, as you left? The hospital didn't give too many instructions, actually, which I wished that they had. And there was there was some things that would have been helpful to hear from them that we found out later. But they just gave this sesame oil-based ointment, which now whenever I smell sesame oil, it reminds me of this ointment. So it was this ointment and they gave some gauze, some regular gauze, regular medical gauze, which for a wound that large was excruciatingly painful to remove. And I'll, I can talk more about that. But What made that painful? Because it would stick to the wound? Mm -hmm, exactly. So we were on a backpacking trip and because of the nature of how we were traveling as, as 20 as young 20 something year olds, we were 
backpacking and just really on our feet the whole time taking buses, public transport, and staying in hostels. We were in foreign countries and didn't know like how to talk to people at pharmacies to get the right level of care. So the one thing we really learned was that the medical gauze would stick to a wound as large as I had. And we went straight from Thailand to Vietnam. We were staying at a hotel in Vietnam. We had upgraded our accommodations. We talked to Margie's parents and they were like, yeah, whatever you have to do, they helped us out in terms of upgrading. And so there was one night where I was trying to remove the gauze that they had given me and it was not coming off. It had like stuck to, to my skin and kind of scabbed over, which was horrific. And so Margie was in the shower with me at this, at this hotel, spraying saline solution to try to moisten this gauze. And I just basically had to rip off an entire layer of my like raw skin. And this is on your leg? Uh, yeah, behind my calf. And it was so, it was just, um, it was, it was just one of those things where you're just kind of like, how is this happening? I'm not prepared for this sort of moment. Imagine unlocking a version of yourself that's unstoppable, where mental barriers no longer hold you back. Listen to Mentally Stronger with me, Amy Morin, therapist and international bestselling author, here to guide you on a journey to reaching your greatest potential. Every Monday, I bring you into conversations with some of the most fascinating minds, experts, authors, entrepreneurs, athletes, and musicians. They don't just share stories. They reveal the mental strategies that propelled them to the top. But here's the real magic. At the end of each episode, I break down their wisdom into practical therapist-approved advice. In my solo episodes, I dive deep into the techniques that build mental strength. It's like having your own personal therapy session as you discover how to turn these insights into steps you can take right now. This podcast isn't just for those facing mental health challenges. It's for anyone who wants to push their limits, achieve peak performance, and truly thrive. Are you ready to unlock your full potential? Then it's time to become mentally stronger. Subscribe to Mentally Stronger with therapist Amy Morin, available wherever you love to listen to podcasts. Do you want to know what it's like to hang out with MS-13 in El Salvador? How the Russian mafia fought battles all over Brooklyn in the 1990s? Or what about that time I got lost in the Burmese jungle hunting the world's biggest meth lab? Or why the Japanese Yakuza have all those crazy dragon tattoos? I'm Sean Williams. And I'm Danny Gold. And we're the host of the Underworld Podcast. We're journalists that have traveled all over, reporting on dangerous people and places. And every week, we'll be bringing you a new story about organized crime from all over the world. We know this stuff because we've been there. We've seen it. And we've got the near misses and embarrassing tales to go with it. We'll mix in reporting with our own experiences in the field. And we'll throw in some bad jokes while we're at it. The Underworld Podcast explores the criminal underworlds that affect all of our lives, whether we know it or not. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel 
when he disappeared and was never heard from again. And Elizabeth Shove from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. So what we ended up doing was they ended up leaving and trying to find a pharmacy that could that could get give us something that would be different from this medical gauze. Like I knew I couldn't go back to the medical gauze and the ointment, so I needed something else. And I think there was a moment at the pharmacy where Bobby was trying to explain to the pharmacist what had happened and kind of giving elephant motions and trampling motions and like something that just must have looked absolutely ridiculous. So what we ended up doing is taking a picture of my wound and showing it to her. And she said, oh, it was just a light bulb moment. Because in, in Vietnam and in Thailand, they have a lot of motor motorbikes and a lot of motorbike accidents. So people get road rash all the time. So they have nonstick silicone gauze. Perfect. It was perfect. It was like exactly what we needed. So it was just like these, these moments of things working out really, really well. But yeah, it was definitely a lost in translation sort of, sort of moment of, wow, how do we, I don't need, I've never had a wound like this. I don't know what I need. And also, I don't know how to ask for it in Vietnamese. So people were so kind and so helpful in this moment that it was really, it was like, yeah, I don't, I think I still haven't gotten rid of that gauze because it means I had like a sheet of it left. And it just what if I so ever need this again? <laughs> exactly. Okay. The big question what caused the elephant to attack you like that? Okay, so what I didn't know, because I was far back in the line, but Margie did know because she was on a baby elephant in the front, was that the reason that we had stopped at that place was because there were helicopters flying overhead and the elephants are very sensitive to vibrations in the ground and very sensitive to helicopters because to them being from a rescued situation helicopters mean poaching helicopters mean hunting they mean you know logging bad stuff so the elephants were starting to get anxious and the guy at the front knew it and he did not want the elephants to stampede i didn't know any of this i was in the back I just thought, I'm going to go thank my elephant. And what I was doing was getting in the face of a very anxious animal. I didn't know it at the time, but that elephant, was very, its nervous system was very dysregulated. It was very on the edge. and It was recalling the trauma mm-hmm. from previous experience, yeah. Exactly, and I had no idea. So... So that is what was elaborated on when we got to the hospital, that they don't typically know when there's going to be helicopters overhead. And this was like an unscheduled event. 
So they wouldn't have done their ride had they known about the helicopters because they know that these animals have this tendency to be anxious and want to run away from the sound of the helicopter. So the, your major wounds were on your leg or was it one leg or both legs? Um, it was primarily on my left leg and then just bruises throughout my body. And then I had my arm in a slit. My shoulder that she had had her arm on did have muscle tissue damage. So were you able to walk okay? I mean, as you're traveling along and backpacking and going through airports and things, how did that work? Yeah, I had a sling for my arm and I was limping. Bobby was so nice and carried my big backpack for me along, you know, as much as I could. And I was starting to get better as the days went by. And we were primarily traveling by train. We went on a little cruise in Halong Bay, which I called the bruise cruise because I was covered in bruises. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we didn't let it get in the way of the things we really wanted to do. And luckily, my injuries were minor enough that we were able to continue on pretty well. We just had to upgrade our accommodations a little bit while I was in an open wound phase <laughs> of the trip. To, you know, just to have like very clean sheets and very clean, you know, not a shared bathroom like in a hostel. I have never stayed in a hostel, but I mean, it seems like something like that where you've got really low cost accommodations and people coming and going all the time. I would imagine they probably don't change the linens as often as they would in a regular hotel. Yes. Typically they're a little, they're low, they're a little lower budget and they're super awesome when you're young and cheap and want to just sleep for a night, but, <laughs> but not the best when you're injured. Who cares about bed bugs, right? <laughs> yeah. Not, not an early 20 year old's uh, top priority. After this or after you got back, did you have any continuing trauma or nightmares or anything? Well, I did have nightmares my first for for a couple weeks when I first got back to New York. And it really didn't last that long. I had, but I think there were kind of traumas that I didn't have time to, they didn't really make sense. But there were little things that, like I kind of made, inadvertently kind of made a story like, oh, I must be bad if this elephant saw this evil in me or something and sort of self victim shaming. Yeah, it was, it was shame, I think. And like when I first got up and looked around when I first, the first time I was able to see when I was getting into the truck, my vision came back. I looked around and I saw all these partners holding their, like all these boyfriends holding their girlfriends in fear and in concern and like, Oh, I'm so glad you didn't get hurt that sort of thing. And so I think I felt this kind of loneliness and it was a, I think when you have a near death experience, it doesn't necessarily hit you right away. The implications of what would happen if I died, but it did, it was kind of a wake up call for me. I was in my early twenties and that year was definitely a journey for me in terms of learning about how I make up stories about the things in my life and who I am in the world and, and 
you know, depression and anxiety and what, what is that? And, you know, I don't think I had had a real understanding of trauma before that and how it can affect you in ways that don't make any logical sense. And did you get through that by figuring it out yourself or did you, did you have therapy? I ended up going to therapy a few years after that. I started meditating that year and it was like a, one of those Wizard of Oz moments, like black and white into color sort of things. So it really That's what meditation, the effect it had on you? Yeah. The first time I meditated, I was really affected, affected by it. And it had an incredible impact on me. And And no drugs involved? No, not at all. I actually ended up later on that year getting sober. You know, I didn't have like a terrible problem, but I was realizing that it was causing me anxiety. So it had a, it had a spiritual impact I think later on. I had a spiritual reading like a like later on that year. The woman I didn't tell her anything about the elephant and she said, "I hope this isn't too woo woo for your viewers." But <laughs> No, it's it's part of your story. Go ahead. But she said, um, the elephants have a message for you. And I was like, well, "Okay, what's this going to be about?" She said, "The elephants have a message for you that in case you ever forget, your work is in the ground, which is, you know, I'm a farmer. I've been a farmer for like 14 years. So to me, that was like, oh, this elephant like pushed me into the ground, like rolled me around in it. And it was like, wow, yeah, you really, you really are of the earth and your mission, your work that you will do is like in the earth. So it was a definitely a, a weird thing for someone who didn't know about it to say to me. So any lingering injuries? It sounds like this is stuff that you could all heal from at least the physical part uh, pretty quickly. Totally. Physically, you know, I have some numbness still in that part of my skin where I lost so much skin and I think there was nerve damage, so it's very numb there. And then my shoulder, I had it pain in in the shoulder for a really long time. And as a farmer, you use your shoulders a lot. So I was experiencing it a lot. And I saw a craniosacral therapist, massage therapist who helped me with that. So um, yeah, it's just like kind of realizing, oh, my body's okay. <laughs> Our bodies recover amazingly sometimes from pretty crazy stuff. Yeah, it's incredible. The, bo- the human body is really, yeah. And the nervous system and everything, it's just so fascinating what it, what it can do with certain experiences that get thrown at it. Would you ride an elephant again? Probably not. You know, been there, done that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I don't think I would. I don't think I necessarily wanted to in the first place. I was happy to feed the elephant, say hi to the elephant, give the elephant water. But I don't really need to ride one. I can walk on my own. <laughs> they can walk on their <laughs> own. <laughs> That's a good way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> For people that want to contact you, you've got some social media and website. Can you tell us about that? If you want to follow me. So one of the things that the elephant accident probably taught me is that there's so much to be grateful for when we are still able to be alive. And so I do a series called the Gratitude Series, and I just post a little video of something I'm grateful for every day. 
And if you're interested, my Instagram handle is smella, S-M-E-L-L-A underscore fresh. So smella fresh on Instagram. And I also have a website, www.plantbestie.com. And I'm a garden consultant and coach. So farming or gardening or anything like that. I've been farming for almost 15 years and I love plants so much. So if you have any questions about any of that, that's my work in the ground. (laughs) Thanks for sharing your story. I'm glad you made it through. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me on. I really, it's been fun. You heard Ella's friend Margie talking about what she saw after the elephant attacked. Well, if Margie's voice sounded a little familiar, it's because she was a guest on the podcast this past summer. That episode was called Margie's Dad Was a Hoarder, and it's an amazing story. If you haven't heard it yet, it should be the next one in your podcast playlist. And coincidentally, I recently heard from Margie when she left me this message because she wanted to tell me how much she appreciates you. Scott, I just wanted to reach out before I forget and just say, like, not only have I had the highest volume of engagement from being on your show that I've ever had from any podcast interview, the quality of the, your listeners are incredible. It's not just that a lot of people have reached out. It's like they've all had these incredibly thoughtful things to say and have shared this amazing stuff about their lives and like why the episode matters to them. It's honestly like, I'm just so grateful to you. You have done something incredible with the show, like the community and audience you've built. I'm like so moved by these people and it's been so cool. People have reached out to me and shared their stories and some of them I've been able to like provide resources or refer them to people. I had somebody who's just like, I have four cats and I'm just so overwhelmed with the cat pee situation. And so I was able to like talk her through some of my tips and she's going to let me know how it goes. And it's just been really cool to like use what I've learned from this experience to be able to like help these wonderful people and witness their stories. And I know I'm rambling a little bit, but it's just been very powerful. And I'm just really grateful to you and really, really impressed with what you've created here because this is the gold standard of a podcast to have such a big such a engaged such a kind audience is really you should be very very proud and you know what i am proud of you and my whole audience whenever i interact with one of my listeners whether it's by email or in the podcast facebook group or even in person sometimes i'm always reminded that you are some pretty special people and i really appreciate you If you haven't joined the other listeners in the Facebook group yet, get over there and join us. Whatwasthatlike.com slash Facebook. And I also heard from Leanne. Hey, Scott. My name is Leanne. I'm 18 years old, turning 19 in February. I don't know why I feel like I need to tell you that, but I feel like I just think I just need to tell you. I just need to tell you right now that what you do is amazing. And it's done so much for me. I've never felt so alone 
than I have in the in the past couple of years, and it's been really bad lately. But your podcast is there for me, and hearing other people and what they go through, it makes me feel better. It makes me feel like I can do this. It's currently seven a.m. right now, and I, I just got off of my work, my shift. I work a night shift, overnight, uh, full time. I would love to send in my story, but I think I'm still going through it. Of course I, of course I am, but I think I'm still going through it in a sense where I don't, I don't know how I would even start or finish. But I would love to tell you my story one day and and leave it in a voice recording for you. But I just wanted to call and leave a voicemail and say that what you do is it's magical. It's magical. It's inspirational. I can't describe how hard every episode hits me, and it's not just about the person talking in their story. It's you too, as a host. You are such an amazing host. Like, Dara. Yeah, I. I was just trying to think about. I have another podcast I'm in love with, but I. You're definitely my favorite host. You're just genuine and you're real, and I just need you to know that I love I love what you do, and I hope I can tell you my story one day.、Um, I think I'm still going through it, but I just I need you to know that you need to just keep doing what you're doing for the rest of your real life because you're it's God it's amazing it is truly amazing. I just listened to eight straight hours of your podcast. I love it so much. I love you. I think you're just what you do is amazing with your platform. Thank you so much. Wow! Thanks, Leanne. I love, love, love hearing about how the stories on this podcast have had such a strong and positive effect on people. And I'll tell you something: they have a strong effect on me too. I'm not just the host of this show; I'm also a listener. Because one of the reasons I started this podcast is because I wanted to hear stories like this, and obviously you're a listener. So if you want to say something, just like Margie and Leanne just did, I want to hear it. I love playing messages from listeners, and it doesn't have to be all lovey-dovey and how great the show is. It's great if you want to offer some constructive criticism too. I'm all for anything that makes the podcast better. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to me, Scott at WhatWasThatLike dot com. Or call the podcast voicemail line seven two seven three eight six nine four six eight anytime, day or night. Maybe even do it right now while you're thinking about it. And here's the big announcement for today: I am now on TikTok. Username, of course, is what was that like? No spaces. And I'm still learning it, so at this point, it's kind of a train wreck. It's funny. I have no problem at all being here behind the mic and just doing audio, but doing these short-form videos, eh? Well, you'll see. What I'm doing over there is a lot less formal. Maybe a little bit of silliness, even. Maybe some behind-the-scenes podcast stuff. Maybe some dog videos, that kind of thing. I see it as more of a playground than a recording studio. So I'd love to have you follow me over there. Again, the username is the podcast name. What was that like? With no spaces. Let me know what you think. And now we're at this week's listener story. This is how we end every episode. So if you have a story you can tell in about five minutes, send it in. This story is about something that happened right here in a city called Dunedin, 
which is here in Florida. It's about 10 minutes away from where I live. Stay safe, and I'll see you in two weeks. Well, this is interesting and traumatic, but I laugh at anything traumatic that's happened. So I recently moved. I know that you're actually located in Florida, and I just moved to a small town called Dunedin. Really small, cute, quaint, safe town right outside of Clearwater. I had gotten into an argument with my boyfriend. We were at a brewery. We live about a mile down the road, and I said I was going to walk home, which is something that I normally do. I have a dog less than a mile down the street. It got a little dark. I had more to drink than I had anticipated, and, you know, I was just walking. So as I'm down a couple blocks, this guy pulls up and uh, gets out of his car and uh, shoves me into his car. <laughs> it was terrifying. The guy kept trying to touch me and, you know, touch my legs, and I was just pushing him off me. Eventually, we got to a parking lot. I guess it was some bar. He <laughs> he was trying, you know, his, he was clearly trying to assault me. I was able to get out of the car, and um, I said I needed to pee, and so he actually took my shorts off of me, which is just absolutely insane. I hid behind a dumpster, and I was able to text my boyfriend where I was. So the next thing I know, my boyfriend comes rolling up and uh, sees a strange man staring at me behind a dumpster, and I don't have my pants on. And I am terrified. I am crying. My boyfriend sucks the guy and then um, gets me and we leave. He begs me to call the cops, but unfortunately, I've been the victim of sexual assault in the past and it's not turned out very well. It's just more traumatizing. And since I wasn't actually hurt, I would say attempted uh, abduction, attempted assault, but um, nothing actually happened to me. You know, I felt like it's fine. I'll just continue with my therapy. The interesting part is that I lost my phone. So after I uh, realized that, I canceled it. My phone was uh, taken, and the next day it was in London, in Louisiana. So I think I dodged a trafficking attempt. Not really sure, but I'm very lucky to be here, and I'm very just puts things in perspective. So that's kind of what happens, even in the safest town. So be safe. Hey, this is Scott. Did you know we offer a premium feed of this show that is completely ad-free and there are bonus episodes? Go to whatwasthatlike.com slash plus or just click the link in the show notes of any episode to learn more and to sign up. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, you can sign up right there in the app by clicking try free at the top of the episode list. And I hope to see you in the premium feed soon.